All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get there in just a minute. And if you're a visitor with us today, it might seem strange to pray for our cities and pray for churches or even pray for specific individuals as we, as we do. And the reality is, one, that if Jesus Christ truly has died and risen, it is the greatest news. And we begin all of our relationships, not in a disgenuine way, where we're trying to be trying to hide our faith, but to literally enter into relationships with the reality that Jesus Christ has indeed changed our lives. Uh, and rather than be deceitful or disgenuine or dishonest and build relationships uh, and, and the entire time trying to uh, get to Jesus, we begin our relationships open-handed. Letting, we, we want people to know who we are. Uh, we want people to know how Christ has changed our lives because we believe that the living example of how Christ has changed us is the best way that we could engage in what real and meaningful relationships are. We also believe in prayer. We, you saw us praying today. We believe that God works through prayer. We believe that God invites us uh, as co-laborers with him to partner in sharing the gospel with more and more people. And you've heard that word many times. The gospel is simply good news. That's literally what it, the translation it is the good news, and we'll talk more about that good news. And then you heard us pray for our one, uh, just be very specifically for people by name. And the reason we do that is, is because God has invited us, no matter what your job is, what your vocation, the reality is that God has invited every single one of us to know him. And for those of us who have known him and tasted him and indeed seen that he is good, he invites us to be his co-laborers, to, to invite others to know him. And so that's why we pray individually by name. And that's why we do what we do. And that's why it's a focus of what we do the third Wednesday, or the third Wednesday, the third Sunday of every month. Let's transition to Easter this morning. And I want to begin. This is an opportunity for us to have a little all play here. Yeah. Adults and children. When we talk about Easter, so the question is, so I began, what are we celebrating? We, I mean, uh, in a a general sense, we as the world, uh, Easter is a holiday that we celebrate all around the world. And what are we celebrating as a church? And then it kind of even more specifically gets to your family. What do you celebrate at Easter? So, what traditions do you have? What memories do you have? And you can just share about what kind of things you do at Easter. So maybe to kind of give you a, an example, I'll share. As a kid, you can see the pink color I'm wearing today. Uh, and, and by the way, so different cultures celebrate in different ways. Uh, when you come to an international church, we're coming from many different cultures. So I, I honestly don't know how you celebrate. For me... Growing up in the church, my dad was a pastor. Easter meant new clothes. Uh, yeah, we, yes. Uh, I, I don't know why, by the way. So I don't know why these things are true. Uh, it's just the way that we celebrated. And, and it probably had to do something with new life. 
new clothes. But, uh, and this was especially when I was younger, not when I was older. I, I'm, I'm still waiting. If I was still waiting for the package to arrive for mom and dad for my new clothes from Easter, I'd be waiting in a very long time. They haven't come in years. Uh, but as a child especially, Easter meant new clothes. I always had a new Easter outfit. Uh, today, I wore Easter colors. So, for example, in, in church, for me, it was very, uh, very normal to have pastel colors. Uh, so, bright spring colors. Blues, pinks, yellows, uh, greens, but the softer tones. Uh, that's one of the ways that we celebrate it. Uh, I can get into even more, but there was also a very special meal for us on, on Easter, and it was shared with family. It was typically grandma or grandpa came over. Uh, we might have somebody from the church. We almost always had a baked ham. Uh, we almost always had mom's butterhorn rolls. Okay, so I got you started. And, by, and just so you know, we're going deeper than talking and trading. All right, Easter stories. We're going, we're going to get in the word. But I just want to talk about, so what is Easter? And what are the Easter memories that you have? Feel free to share. What is Easter for you? Resurrection cookies. Yeah, so Those are like diet cookies. Whole, there's a hole in the middle there, at least. Yeah. So resurrection cookies slash diet cookies. They're missing the middle there. Yeah. We we did some of the same. What else? Sunrise service. Yeah, I don't know if other places do this. I know in the U.S. we did sunrise service. <laughs> so if you don't know what sunrise service it literally means, sunrise service is that you get out. It's in the dark. You're you go to a. It's usually often outdoors. Yes, wow. Yeah. Praying that all of a sudden the, those come out of their graves, right? So sunrise service is another tradition, uh, and I'm not sure if this is a more, uh, if it's celebrated by the worldwide church, but yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Awesome. So there's things that we do for our children. David? Oh, we have a new budding friendship over here, huh? They're, they're sharing a Christian tradition, right? Yes, okay. Anything else? Okay. Okay. So we have church traditions uh, that we celebrate. And the, the reality is those traditions are, are meaningful to us. They, they make Easter Easter in a sense. Uh, I, I mean, we could go on. I could go on to, first of all, the proliferation of chocolatey goods. 
uh, Easter bunnies and little lambs, uh, eggs, things in the shape. So I don't know, by the way, I didn't do any research on why these things are. My research was in the Bible this week. So I don't know why we have Easter bunnies. I don't uh, don't know why we have little eggs. Uh, I can make some guesses. Uh, But we uh, we would get at our family a little Easter basket, and I would have some, some candies. We also, in our family, we did an Easter egg hunt. We're literally, uh, and why we called it Easter egg hunt, I don't know, because my family just hid, hid candy. Uh, there was no eggs or nothing. Uh, with my mom would hide candy, we called it Easter egg hunt, and I was the youngest of four, and we would go bananas uh, everywhere around the house trying to find chocolates. So, the reality is, is that we have memories about what, what we do at Easter, right? So every year, we do these things. What I want to focus on is, but what is Easter about? What is Easter about? And there's nothing wrong with traditions, and there's, really, there's nothing wrong with ways that our family celebrates. All right, we got two more participants. We got, we got uh, CJ and Zeke in the back, I was trying to process whose hand was first. What did you want to share with us, CJ? So, Easter is about Jesus' Christ. It is! You win the prize! It is about Jesus Christ! Exactly! Zeke, were you going to share the same thing? He died and he raised. That's fantastic. In fact, the first person who, who greeted me with, he is risen this morning, was Zeke. And I thought, Wow! This is, this is fantastic. You guys are right on the ball. So let's look at 1 Corinthians. You're both right, CJ and Zeke. 1 Corinthians 15, because what I just talked about is the reality that Easter is many things for us. It brings many memories. Maybe most of all, for us adults, Easter is a holiday, right? It's, it's, it's a, a time off. It's a season off from work. Uh, especially here in Germany. Right now, our kids are on their Easter break. So there's many things that come to mind. What I want to do is focus now, but what is Easter specifically? In Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to take a look at three specific things that Easter is. By the way, Easter is not in the Bible, and we don't even know why we have the word Easter. But the events... The events that Easter celebrates are historical events. Early, I began saying that this, this singular week is the week in all of history that has changed everything. That uh, if we actually look at the Easter celebration, I told you we don't know where the name Easter comes from. But what we can say, and what we do know very specifically, because uh, when you look at the Gospels, we very specifically know that this Passion Week, this Holy Week that began, we know it was between April 3rd and April 7th, years 30 to 33. We don't know specifically. The reason we don't know specifically is, is because it depends on the reign, the, the, the reign of the Roman rulers. Sometimes the rulers would, one, one rule and reign would finish and the other would start. They also had this unique situation where sometimes they'd overlap, where in a sense somebody was apprenticed for a year or two. And we don't know whether there was a, a stop and end or there was an overlapping. Here's what we know. During Passover week, we know it was very specifically uh, based upon the, the Jewish calendar, which we now have, uh, we have a kind of a, a 
what is what is our calendar called? It's not a, is it a Roman calendar? Um, we 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 have a different calendar, but we know April third to April seventh, years thirty through thirty three A.D. It was a very specific week in Jesus' life. The Gospels record this, and we actually know specifically what Jesus was doing almost day by day. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, we know when he entered into the city. We know on Thursday he washed his disciples' feet. He had his last supper with them. He goes and prays in Gethsemane. He's, uh, he is betrayed by Judas with a kiss. He is taken to a midnight court with uh, the high priests. He is... He is convicted. He is crucified on Thursday or fr- Friday. He's taken off the cross. He's put in the grave. And he resurrects on Sunday. We know piece by piece what happened very specifically. So why we don't know where the name Easter comes from, we do recognize the reason that we celebrate is very specifically the events surrounding Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm just going to read actually 3 to 4. And here's the outline that we had. So what do we celebrate? We're going to take a look at what is the meaning. We're going to take a look at why does it matter to me or, or specifically you. Let's read together. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, I told you there is no... Easter, necessary, uh, name Easter. We can go to the Gospels and I can read for you the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The reason I go to 1 Corinthians is this is probably the most succinct summary of the Christian faith you will find in the Scriptures. It's three things. And this is what we call the Gospel. So if you were to say, what is, what is the most simple and basic definition of this good news, the Gospel? And notice this is Paul. Paul is is writing to the Corinthian church. Paul is the apostle Paul that you have known and read about. He was the the last of the apostles. We had Jesus' actual disciples. And then the scriptures note one more kind of apostle, which was the apostle Paul, where Jesus appears to him on his road to Damascus. Uh, After Jesus has died and resurrected, he literally appears to Paul. Uh, That story you can find in Acts, and Paul was the one writing these things. Notice the way that he begins. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. This is a a very specific way of Paul uh, relating to us that what he is communicating, this is formalized Christianity, as far as this is the the kernel of the Christian faith. He's saying, of first importance, what I passed on to you, when, when I lived and ministered in Corinth, what I passed on to you, was the very seed that was passed on to, by Jesus Christ to me. And that was that he died. Notice what he says, in accordance with, our, uh, with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. So these are the three things we're going to explore today. And we talk about the meaning. So if you want to have a visual, so we talked about a lot of things. Chocolate Easter bunnies, mom's special meal, new clothes for me. There's a lot of things that I love about Easter, a lot of traditions. And by the way, Traditions aren't wrong. Memory, creating memories and creating traditions with your family aren't a wrong thing. But what we want to talk about is, but not as a, a individual family, so I want to talk about as a church family. As a family of faith, what is it that Easter is about? And it's those three things. And just get a mental image. We're going to have a visual image. Jesus died, 
I want, in your, your mind, and we'll have these images just for you. Jesus on the cross. Jesus was buried. I want you to think of the grave with the, with the stone covering the grave, sealed, Jesus, uh, the, the scriptures tell us. And I want us to think of the open tomb, okay? Those are the three images that really signify what the Christian faith is about, but also what we celebrate at Easter. So, let's dig in. I want to talk about and unpack this idea of what is Easter. Let's look at Christ crucified. I said, notice how it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul's very specifically pointing to the fact that the Old Testament Scriptures were telling about this, or they were foretelling, it's what we call prophesying. Isaiah 53, 4-6, what does it mean that Jesus was crucified? Isaiah 53, 4-6 says this, Surely he, was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Excuse me. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned. Every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So first and foremost, what does it mean that Jesus died? He was crucified. Well, Isaiah, which we have studied actually in, in recent weeks, was written 700 years before Christ, very clearly paints a picture of what we call a suffering Christ. It's a Christ who died very specifically for sins. You notice that, see that last line? It says, all we like sheep have gone astray, so that all of us have, have turned away. All of us have turned from the path. And it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The picture is very clear that, that God is laying on this suffering servant our sin, our iniquity. So first and foremost, we see, what does it mean that Jesus was crucified? Well, he was killed or, or it was prophesied that he would die for sin. Secondly, let's take a look at John 1, 29. Now notice, by the way, everything I'm giving you is straight from scriptures. The, what we are celebrating and what we're explaining today is not Sam's understanding of Easter. This is straight from scripture, line by line, text by text, really explaining those three things. Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. So John 1.29 talks about Jesus being kind of a willing sacrifice. John 1.29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. Who is he? Who is... That was John the Baptist. And he said, when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the way, away the sin of the world. When we are first introduced to Jesus from the very first story, in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist, if you don't know John the Baptist, uh, you might know the name John the Baptist, or was a forerunner. He came before Christ, and he was pointing the way to Jesus. And he was helping the people recognize and see that there's someone coming behind me, and, and this is the one. And he, he's pointing out who Jesus would be. When John sees him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Let me just focus on this idea of lamb. Uh, now, that is actually something that it has made it into a lot of Christmas or Christmas Easter traditions. The idea of either eating a lamb, which comes from the Passover, by the way. That's old, your Old Testament history. Uh, but also this fact that a lamb was what was uh, sacrificed for the Passover. So in the history of Israel, to be in relationship with God, God gave them a special command in recognizing that they were sinners and they were separated from him. But God desired to be in a relationship with them and that God would literally live among his people in the temple. That God would allow once a year the high priest to to come and to offer a sacrifice. And once a year, God's people would celebrate this what was called Passover. That means God passing over their sins. Instead of pouring out uh, his, his wrath and the judgment for their sins, is that God would pass over their sins. Well, how did that happen? It happened through a lamb. That each family would take a lamb a week before the Passover, and they would separate that lamb from the flock. And so each family would have their lamb by their house for that week. And that lamb was to be a perfect lamb. It it was not to be lame. It was not to be uh, diseased. It was to be a a lamb that was basically the best they had to offer. And then as the day approached, they would take that lamb and they would take it to the temple and that lamb would would be slaughtered by the priest and its blood put on the altar. And that was, was a living symbol that God disdains sin so much that it literally required life. That God being holy, maybe disdain is not the right word. Maybe I, I, I should rephrase it. Because the, the scriptures say, the reason I use that word is because it says God hates sin. But maybe a better way to help you understand is a holy God literally can't be near sin. God is holy. He has no sin. And so how could a holy God be with his people? Well, God makes a way through this lamb. And that's what we're getting at. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did it mean that Jesus was crucified? It meant that Jesus came as that sacrificial lamb, is that Jesus was coming. And uh, much as the people understood and knew that a lamb was set aside, and by the sacrifice of that lamb, God passed over their sins, And so they saw God's grace and God's judgment at the same time. And it was a pointer for not only Israel, but for all of us to say sin is serious. And God will not allow sin to go unpunished. And God does show grace. But the reality is a lamb can't take our place. A lamb is just an animal. And so when we see what, what does this mean that Jesus was crucified, what it means is that God finally came and he replaced that lamb, an animal, with himself, and he died as a sacrificial lamb. That's what it means that Jesus was crucified. Lastly, let's look at, take a look at 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree is meaning that cross, that wooden cross. And then it gives a reason. It says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The last thing was when we talk about what does it mean that Jesus was crucified. Well, one, it was prophesied that he would take on himself our sins. Two, he was a willing sacrifice. Jesus literally laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb. 
But three, it means this great exchange. Did you see this exchange happening here in 1 Peter 2.24? It says, He himself bore our sins in his body. Jesus took our sins. And it says, So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus has taken our sin and given us life. It's this great exchange is what Martin Luther has called it. It's, It's a deal that gives us every advantage and gives God nothing but us. And God took that deal because he loved us. That's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not experience death or not die, but have eternal life, be given the gift of eternal life. So the first thing I want you to remember is Christ crucified. What is Easter? Easter is Christ crucified. We see it prophesied. We see the sacrifice of a lamb, and we see an exchange. Let's go ahead and take a look at this idea of Jesus being buried. So the second thing, and I had Des kind of on a wild chase trying to find pictures. By the way, so we were trying to find the best pictures that we could. And believe it or not, just about every picture you find online is one of the grave open. There's very few with the grave closed. The reason I wanted this, uh, by the way, we don't know exactly what this looked like, right? So when we think of graves, we think of mostly uh, in the ground. But if you know what a mausoleum is, then you know something a little bit about, about above ground burials, is that, yes, there's cemeteries where we bury in the ground, but just about every cemetery has some kind of raised structure above, more like a mausoleum, and you, you put the body in, in uh, this above ground structure. We know that graves during this time, uh, especially for those who are more wealthy, if you could afford a piece of land and you had this, either you could dig into the rock or hollow out uh, a a portion of the rock, and that would sometimes serve as a grave. And we know this very specifically, that although Jesus owned no land, that he was given a grave like this, and we have this recorded in Scripture. Turn to Matthew 12, 38 to 41. And we'll get to the grave, but first I want to get to what does it mean that Jesus was buried? When Jesus talks about his burial, he talks about it as a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. So Matthew 12, 38 to 41, let me read it to you. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. By the way, so if you're reading Jesus' story over and over again, Jesus is sharing about the kingdom. He's sharing good news, and he's facing either outright rejection, uh, or he's facing those like here. They say, we'll believe you if you give us a sign. We want something very specific. We know you perform miracles. We know you've done many things. We want a sign. So you have some of these scribes and Pharisees say, teacher, we want a sign. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? In verse 40 it says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus very specifically 
uh, points to the fact that he will experience a burial. At this point in time, it's a little bit veiled. But one of the things I want you to see is Jesus very clearly is pointing to the fact that just as Jonah was in the, the belly of the whale, basically in a sense, it, it was his burial, it was his grave, and God provided a miraculous deliverance. Where I don't know of any other story where we have a man eaten by a whale or a great fish who is a miraculous recovery uh, from, the, from the depths of the sea. Uh, but what it does is it illustrates this beautiful picture of Jesus who has been buried and has a miraculous resurrection. And so Jesus sees his burial as a sign. So even in his ministry, he is talking about this and pointing to this. Now, more specifically, let me get to the grave, because I just talked about that. Matthew 27, and here is the story of Jesus' burial. It says, when it was evening, so this Jesus has been crucified, and he has died. It says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen and a shroud, and he laid it in his own tomb. So Jesus, not having any earthly effects, he's buried in the tomb of a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who had the, the, the grave already prepared for himself. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Notice verse 62 through 66. This is important. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that the imposter said while he was alive, After three days I will rise. Right? What are they specifically referring to? They're referring to what I just shared with you, of Jesus sharing with the Pharisees and scribes, and they said, We want a sign, and Jesus says, Here's your sign. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, and he was, in a sense, resurrected. I will be in the earth. And so they remember this. And they say, here's what he said. While he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So let me just tell you what happened. Jesus is taken, and he's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. If you can go back to the picture, Des, those tombs looked a little bit something like this. Is that there, would, there was a, an opening, and by the way, we don't know, that stone looks about as tall or as taller than me. We don't know if it was a, something smaller. What I can tell you is this. That stone was unbelievably heavy, and you needed multiple men to move it into place. At the bottom of, of uh, these graves, there was a little channel that, that that stone would fit in, right? So the, these are professionals. They have a way of burying. This is how they've done this. There's a whole... A group of people who make their living from designing these things. And the way it was designed is that you would get that stone and there would be a little channel carved out of rock and you would forcefully get that stone in. And once it's in place, 
There was no moving it out. Uh, it protected the body inside from robbers, from whatever else. But Pilate even tells them, go ahead and seal the tomb. So they probably took some kind of clay or resin. And all around the rock, they put a, a, uh, a kind of, in a sense, a barrier that if broken, we know somebody has tried to get into the tomb, right? We know this from ancient letters. When you were sending an ancient letter, the way that you uh, would make sure that letter was not opened was that you sealed it with wax. And that way, whenever that person received your letter, they knew if the, if the seal was broken, somebody has already been in the letter. Somebody has read the contents before you. It's the same principle here. In addition to the stone, in addition to the seal, Pilate tells them, you could take a guard of soldiers. I don't know how many that meant. But now Jesus' tomb is also guarded, and it's guarded for the specific reason that Jesus' opponent said, when he was alive, he told a crazy story that he would be buried as a sign and rise again in three days. In fact, so they didn't even care about guarding it for forever. They didn't care about guarding it for a week. They said guard it for three days, because if it's not in three days, the story's false. We have the stone, we have the seal, we have a guard commissioned by Pilate himself. And it's absolutely important that you get this two things from this burial. One, Jesus was dead. This is not a hoax. Jesus didn't hide and suddenly reappear. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. And the last point we'll get to in just a second, he was resurrected. But he was completely dead. The reason I point that out, and you think, Sam, why would you even take the time? There are so many theories that say Jesus fainted, that Jesus hid, that Jesus had a body double that was actually on the cross. Here's all I'll say. You can explore all those all you want. There's books and volumes of all the things that could have happened about Jesus. Here's what I'll tell you from Scripture. Jesus prophesied that he would be buried. He was buried. And there was a Roman guard specifically to prevent a fraud from his disciples. Okay? Lastly, the last image I want to get to is Jesus' resurrection. So, once again... I'm inviting you to think through what does Easter mean? The first is crucifixion. The second is the tomb with the stone in front. And this last image is the image that we often see for the grave, and that is the stone rolled away. And you can see in this picture, it's it's a little bit different. One, because we have a real picture. The last one was computer graphics. But you can see there's kind of a channel. They they have a little uh, piece of, it almost looks like wood, wedged here to keep the stone open and to keep it from rolling back. But this is something like what the tomb may have looked like. This is something like what Jesus, uh, uh, at the time of Jesus' death, people were being buried in. And so let's take a look at the meaning of this resurrection. Because the last image you need to know, and this is the passage that Amanda read, was that when Jesus' disciples, Mary, uh, came, the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. There was an angel sitting there. There is no guard. That they've been terrified and they ran away. And so what does Jesus' resurrection mean? Romans 6, 9 says this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And death no longer has dominion. What happened when Jesus resurrected was the death 
of death is that death has been conquered and Jesus has died to never die again. When we talk about the fact that we worship a risen Lord, Christianity is the only religion where we worship a living God. Every other founder of every other religion, and you probably heard this many, many times, is dead. There is no religion, or no religion. If you turn to Mormonism, if you turn to Buddhism, if you turn to Islam, every founder of every religion is dead. Jesus is the only one who is living. We worship a living Savior. We don't worship a God who came and died for sin. We worship a God who came, died, buried, and was resurrected. And that is why it is good news. And so in the death of or Christ, we have the death of death. That's the first thing. Revelations 1, 17 to 18. Here is the same principle told in just a slightly different way. It says, when I saw him, this is the last book of the scriptures. This is John, his apostle. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. Not only has Jesus defeated death, but when we talk about what is, what is death in Hades, Hades is, is the place when we think of when we, uh, we often call hell. Hades is the place of the dead. Jesus says, I have the keys. What is Jesus basically saying there? Is that he is the authority over death. He is the authority over hell. Two more things I want you to see as far as the meaning of the resurrection. I want you to see indestructible hope. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Let me read that again. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. So what does Jesus' resurrection mean? The same God with the same power who raised Jesus is the same God who raised you. You have an indestructible hope. I was trying to figure out what was the right term for this. The best term I could think of is indestructible because it can't be destroyed. The fact that God has conquered death and the fact that out of his love for his son, that God is bringing men and women to his son to give them as a gift his church, God's honor, his glory is mixed up, is tied together with the fact that when God brings an end to this world, that he is also bringing men and women and children to be the bride of his son. There's an indestructible promise that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise you. When you, when you placed your faith in Christ, you now have an indestructible hope. I mean, that changes your future. When, when, uh, I don't know. Think about when you get discouraged. Just think about it. When you get discouraged is, is typically when we lose hope in the circumstances around us. There's, there is circumstances, there are events in, in our life that are causing us to lose hope for this week, for this month, for my life. I'll never be out of debt. I'll never be this. I'll never be that. What Jesus gives us is an indestructible hope that is far, a far, far greater promise than anything else, and that is that we have eternal life. This world, no matter the worst that we can experience, is 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 years old. <laughs> but the reality is we have an indestructible promise of eternity 
with God in heaven. Lastly, we have that indestructible hope right now. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also gave you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The indestructible promise is not for just when we die. What changes life is that the indestructible promise of life begins right now because Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame and our sins and given us his life. So what does the resurrection mean? The death of death, an indestructible promise for the future, but indestructible life right now. All right, let's end with a little Easter bet. And you think, hey, I don't think we gambled in church. We, we don't gamble in the church, we, but we are going to t- take an opportunity to talk about what does Easter mean to you. So I'm talking to you specifically right now. I'm not talking about how you celebrate Easter as a family. I'm not talking about the truths of Easter, which are Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. I'm talking about what Easter means to you. So let's talk about an interesting guy by the name of Blaise Pascal. Anybody heard of him? Blaise Pascal, in what has become known in philosophy as Pascal's wager, was a fascinating theologian, philosopher, mathematician, and Pascal, years ago, there he is, this handsome young man. <laughs> yeah, if you're having a bad day, look at Blaise Pascal, famous guy. I think, yeah, enough said. <laughs> if you're having a bad day, look at Blaise. Here's, here's a famous mathematician and philosopher. Now, but here's, in all seriousness, Blaise Pascal uh, and not an amazing theologian, but a theologian, somebody who thought and wrote about God. Here's Pascal's wager, and it's become famous in what we might call probability theory or decision theory. It's still used today. And it's, it's basically using mathematics and probabilities to choose the best outcomes. And that entire science of decision-making started with Blaise Pascal, and it started with this. By the way, this was never a published uh, theory. After Pascal died, they went through his notes and his writings, and they found all his notes and writings on this idea. He didn't give it a name, but it's become known as Pascal's wager. So here's his wager, and it's basically this. Pascal, in looking at life as a philosopher, as a theologian, as a mathematician, basically said, there's no way any of us actually knows what happens after we die. And Pascal literally called it, he said it was a coin flip. Pascal said it's 50-50, heads or tails. Have you ever used a coin flip to decide anything? Uh, Pascal basically said his understanding in life is that it's 50-50. We don't know whether we live or we die. But he also said what's sure is that you play the game. That's why I asked if any of you would like to bet. Because whether you realize it or not, you're betting with your life on a certain set of truths and principles and your future hope. So Pascal, by the way, not quoting this because he's a great theologian, quoting this because he's a fascinating character uh, and who did a lot of thinking about life. Pascal said, so in my understanding, everybody has to play the game and you can't get out. You're, You're playing with your life right now. Everybody's in the game. His understanding as he looked at it was basically... There's only two options. Either there's some kind of afterlife or there's not. 
But we don't know. So what Pascal said, it's the coin flip. So then Pascal looked and he used his amazing uh, ability to think and reflect and he says, but here's what I see. Pascal looked at the probabilities and said, well, there's only two options. God exists, God doesn't exist. And then Pascal hit an impasse and he says, but with my reason alone, I don't have the ability to make the decision. There's nothing that my reason can tell me whether life exists after death. So Pascal then said, well, let me make it a mathematical problem. Pascal looked and said, Jesus, or, or God exists or he doesn't. I believe or I don't. So mathematically, which is better for me? That was his reasoning. And Pascal says, well, if I believe in God, I change the way I live right now, and my life looks a little bit different. I have a hope that there's God. And then I die, and God is real. Then I win eternally and infinitely. I win in life now. I win in life in the future. That's Pascal's argument. He said, let's say I don't believe in God. Pascal's argument was, well, I have no hope in this life now because I am my only hope. Hope was from with, with me. And if I die with not believing that God exists and God still doesn't exist, I win nothing. Basically, I, it's a losing argument. Pascal's argument is, I don't believe in God now. I die. Nothing happens. I believe in God. My life changes now. I have hope now, and he exists. Now, I'm going to take a wager because I don't actually think Pascal's argument is the strongest argument. Let me take you to a resurrection argument, right? Does everybody understand Pascal's line of thinking? So mathematically and as from a probabilities perspective, Pascal answered the question once and for all from a pure mathematical perspective, which is the better view? Pascal says probabilities and pure mathematical science says you have a much better bet on betting on heaven. Better life now, better life in the future. Let me just change this because actually there's a key difference between what Pascal was working with and what we're working with today. Remember I told you Pascal thought it was a coin flip? The story I just read to you, the historical truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not a coin flip, according to scriptures. It's an absolutely confirmed fact that the scriptures invite us to believe. When I said that the Holy Week was the most important week, literally it was life-changing, it was eternity-changing, it was. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was alive in that last week of his life, celebrating the Passovers with his disciples before his crucifixion and death, is that that week changed eternity. And we went no longer went from, I don't know if it's heads or tails, because the Bible's version doesn't allow us to say it's a coin flip. The Bible's version says this, that the greatest obstacle to humanity enjoying eternity with God was our sin and that God himself dealt with that sin by allowing our sins to fall on Jesus Christ and Jesus did die and he was buried and he was resurrected because if that's the formula then the outcome is certain death has been defeated 
And you have an indestructible hope now, and you have an indestructible hope in the future. And so my invitation to you, and, and by the way, what I'm talking about, you might think, Sam, that all sounds good, but I don't believe it. And here's the reality. Let me give you some ammunition. If this is not true, the entire Christian argument falls. You disprove Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we, as in Paul's words, uh, what he says is we are of all men most miserable. Christianity rises and falls on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't have to get into miracles or creation or my views versus your views. You disprove the resurrection and you disprove Christianity. And we and our, all of our prayers for those who don't know Christ fall on deaf ears because there is no God and he has no power. And everything that Jesus said about what he was doing in this earthly ministry means nothing because he died like the rest of us. But if he is resurrected and God has proven that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice, then we are of all men filled with unbelievable eternal joy. So let me change the wager. I'll take one thing from Pascal. You're betting with your life. And you're in the game. That part is true. Pascal didn't see the end. And he didn't fully understand of how much that argument would change the now. So let me end with one more scripture. I've tried my very best to just give you scripture after scripture after scripture. When you walk away, what I hope you see is you didn't hear from Sam or River of Life or anything else. You heard from the scriptures how we define Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. Let me end with this. John eleven twenty five to 27. This is after Jesus resurrects Lazarus, and he's talking with his sister, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Final answer. Final question. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us to the point of willingly going to the cross. You offered yourself as a sacrificial lamb for our sin. You allowed yourself to die. You were buried, but you resurrected. And because of that fact, Father, 2,000 years after Jesus was crucified, we stand here celebrating on this Resurrection Sunday, the new day of the week, where we have come alongside of you and come alongside of the fact that we believe, Father, that you accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And as a result, we have an indestructible hope that just as you raised Jesus Christ, you will raise us. Lord, we ask that you give us the faith to believe in these things and teach us, God, to, to truly understand and know with earnestness and a, a sobering reality that we're betting with our life about things that matter for eternity. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.